following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. I had a youth pastor when I was a kid growing up, maybe about know, 15 or 16 years old. This youth pastor came to my church and uh, got to know him really well, and he you know, he, was, uh, he had a sense of humor. He was a true Mainer. So his sense of humor was a little bit, a little bit biting, a little bit sarcastic, a little bit like mine. And uh, I remember one time we came to youth group and he said, Okay, guys, let's all go to the mall and hand out tracts. Because remember, you're not a Christian until you get beat up for it. <laughs> That youth pastor went on to bigger and better things. You probably know some of you that uh, I'm talking about my friend Jason, who was a co-founder of Artisan Church uh, with me and some other guys, Mike and uh, Brian, coming up on 10 years ago now. Um, so he's, he actually said that. <laughs> Let's hand out tracts at the mall, because you're not a Christian until you get beat up for it. If you don't know what a tract is, it's uh, basically a leaflet often in the style of a comic book, that, um, I'm not, it's not a joke, there's some of them right there on the screen. It tells the story of the gospel, ostensibly, and the idea is that you can just leave it lying around somewhere for someone to find and read, and that will, when they read it, they'll be inspired to convert to Christianity. Uh, I refer to this as littering for Jesus. <laughs> now, I'm a believer in the power of the Holy Spirit. I think it's entirely possible that uh, God might use a tract like this to actually bring somebody to faith. I just think it's extremely, extremely, extremely unlikely. And more importantly, I place it in the category of does more harm than good. And uh, if you look at these two particular examples, I can tell you what I mean. These, I chose these because these are, these are specifically trying to convert groups of people who have uh, non-Christian religious commitments. Uh, specifically in the case of the one on the left, evil eyes with the uh, bloodshot eyes and the chicken. Um, this is aimed at people who practice Santeria. Um, very subtle. And then uh, the one on the right... You can't even imagine by the title, you, you're thinking to yourself, no, please don't be about Native Americans. But yes, it is, actually. It actually is. Now, I cannot show you the inside of these tracts because they are so profoundly offensive. I mean, you think the Cleveland Indians have a Chief Wahoo problem with sensitivity? I don't, I'm so embarrassed that, that this even exists in the world. Um, at the risk of spoiling the story uh, contained therein, I'll just tell you that in both cases, a very conservatively dressed white man comes and converts somebody uh, after telling them that they're pagans and that they're, you know, 
each and every way that their particular religious commitments are, are sending them down the road to hell. Today, we're going to see an example from Scripture of a different way of engaging cultural and religious beliefs that are different from ours in the course of sharing the gospel. And I, th- I, I think this is, one, this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and I can't wait to get into it. But before we do, I, I want to um, just diffuse the cynicism a little bit. Last week, I went on a little bit of a rant at the end of my sermon, and it was one of those moments where I, I thought to myself, oh, I know what, I'll talk about this right now. And there was this part of me that said, no, you said enough, you should just stop. And then it was like, no, it's going to be really fun. And I kind of went off on this, this rant about saving evangelism from idiots and jerks. And um, I think you've always been very gracious with me in my, my rabbit traily kind of weird way of, uh, of, of speaking publicly. Um, and I suspect that you got the point I was trying to make there. But I, I do confess that that was maybe not the most charitable way to say what I was trying to say. Um, so I won't rehash it beyond that. But I, I ultimately don't think that that kind of attitude is very helpful, um, really in, in any way, but specifically about evangelism. So by way of apology, here's a great counterpoint that I want to read to you, just a little real little window passage from somebody who's a lot more charitable than I am, uh, Henry Nowen. He says, he says this so well and so gently. I think it speaks, it's almost a bullseye for what I, what I perceive as the, the particular cultural locus of, uh, of artisan people. Right. He says, as a reaction to a very aggressive, manipulative, and often degrading type of evangelization, we sometimes have become hesitant to make our own religious convictions known, thereby losing our sense of witness. Although at times it seems better to deepen our own commitments than to evangelize others, it belongs to the core of Christian spirituality to reach out to the other with good news, to speak without embarrassment about, and here he quotes from 1 John, what we have Heard and seen with our own eyes what we've touched with our hands. That comes from Reaching Out, which is a book that we read together as a community um, not quite a year ago. And I think it's just a nice balance point to, to some of the cynicism that I, I just I have a hard time letting go of when it comes to this topic, and I suspect it may be true for some of you as well. So. All right, so last week... I talked a little bit about the distinction between the synagogue and the marketplace, using these two uh, locations as metaphors for the types of places in which you might go and, and share the gospel, um, categories or locations for evangelism, you might say. And the synagogue uh, was because the early Christians were Jews, and uh, it made sense to them that the first order of business was to frame the resurrection of Jesus as the culmination of God's work among his chosen people. And then the marketplace is kind of the next ring out from the center where the apostles would also go and spend time in secular culture. The Greco-Roman culture was was um, pluralistic, 
And so there was lots of different types of religious belief and non-belief and everything in between. So they would start at the center uh, of their world, which was Judaism, and then they would go out into the marketplace and share the gospel with uh, people who, who I think they would probably term pagan. And so last week, we, we spent some time on this, the so-called synagogue evangelism. Um, we're n- not most of us Jewish people, so we don't spend time in synagogues, and that's not really the, the point. The point was, what does it mean to share the gospel in the context of our own religious community, right, to start here and, and go out? So today, I want to talk about that second half, which is the marketplace. And there's a very clear example of this actually this, this whole process in Acts 17. Um, the book uh, of Acts tells the story of the early church, and in chapter 17, it, we open with um, Paul and Silas going to the Greek city of Thessalonica. So, it's map time. Yay! Geography! <laughs> Boo! <laughs> well, we can't all be math nerds. Sorry, guys. Okay, so this is the Mediterranean Sea, right? And here's uh, the continent of Africa. Jerusalem is right down here, ish. Okay, <laughs> we're just going to go with ish. Okay, it's, we just want to get in the neighborhood, right? And uh, Thessalonica is up here. This is this is Greece, right? Italy is the boot. Greece is that. <laughs> I don't know what we call. I don't know what what we remember Greece by. Uh, oh, an upside-down witch's hat. That's good, Abel. I was going to go with, like, puke, but that's probably not... <laughs> that's probably offensive to our Greek friends. Anyway, um, so Thessalonica's up here. <clears throat> and uh, he's eventually going to end up uh, in Athens, which is down here, right on the coast, okay? So you have this in your head. This is maybe about a 1,000 miles as the crow flies from Jerusalem to Thessalonica and then down to Athens, right? So you have this in your head. I I think that's helpful. Uh, I can't prove it, but I think it is. So Paul gets to Thessalonica with Silas, and uh, as his custom says in verse 2 of uh, Acts 17, he went in on three Sabbath days to the synagogue and argued with them from the Scriptures. This gets him in trouble with the Jewish leaders, and so they move on down to Baroa, which is just the next town to the south. And uh, verse 10, when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. It goes better here, and they start to see some more converts than they did in Thessalonica. But soon enough, the, the Jewish leaders from Thessalonica find out that they're just, they've just moved on down the, down the road a little bit. So they come down and follow them, and they start to stir up trouble for the apostles. Um, so much so that they, the apostles actually send Paul away. It says they sent him away to the coast. Like he's on hiatus or something. He's going to go to Spain, right? No, he goes down. Um, the, the, he's carried as far as Athens. And he disembarks in Athens. And that's where I want to start. To, that's where I want to pick up the story this morning. So if you've uh, got a Bible with you, you can turn to Acts 17, 16. And uh, if you don't, you can look in the Red Bibles. And we're going to be on page 902 in the Red Bibles. It's always okay just to listen along to. If you're not a visual learner, that's fine. 
I'll give you just a second to find it if you're looking for it. By the way, if you don't own a Bible and would like to own a Bible, please take one of the red ones home with you. We um, buy them periodically because they, they walk away, and that's exactly what we hope they do. So you're not stealing because it's a gift. Um, if you do own a Bible, I say sometimes, maybe bring it with you on Sundays. I don't know. It's like, <laughs> a crazy idea. <clears throat> Oh, we are a weird group of people. <laughs> All right, so let me read uh, 16 through 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews about, and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So you see the synagogue and the marketplace. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. These are Greek schools of philosophy. Remember, we're in Greece now. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This is because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Oropagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely, extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for Him and find Him, though indeed He is not far from each one of us. For, quote, in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are His offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, Now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them, but some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So I love this story. love this story. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament. I just want to hit a few of the high points. Um, one of the reasons I think this story is interesting is because I think Athens at the time of 
Paul, shortly after the time of Christ, is not, not so unlike our own city today. There are some obvious ways that it's very different, but I think that there are some ways that it's similar as well. I perceive um, that in much of American secular culture, people who are not churchgoers, in other words, that there is a certain openness, not unlike that of the Athenians who, who asked Paul to say, asked Paul, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? I love how just open-minded and frank they are about this. It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Something about what Paul said intrigued the people. And I think that maybe is the first problem for us with our efforts at evangelism, that we are not saying anything intriguing. <laughs> right? So then it says, they took him. <laughs> this is great because when he preached in the synagogues, the Jewish leaders took him too. They took him and had him flogged. They took him and put him in jail. The Athenians, these pagans, these idol worshipers, with evil eyes, right? They took him in and said, we would love to know more about what you are saying. Please, will you tell us what this means? So Paul begins a more formal presentation for them at the Oropagus, which is uh, the, the rock of Ares, um, the Roman god of Oh, that's the Greek god of war. The Roman version is Mars, right? So you might have heard this as uh, described as Mars Hill. In fact, there's some more than one fairly large, famous church named Mars Hill. Um, he begins this formal presentation to them by saying this. You pagans, with all your idols, are going to burn. No. That is not what he says. You know that's not what he says because I just read you the passage and you have a very good memory. (laughs) What he actually says is, Athenians, I see how very religious you are in every way. That is so nice. I went through your town and looked carefully at the objects of your worship. Here's another clue for us. Whatever, Whatever... specific version of otherness we see out there, I think sometimes all we are interested in doing is bringing that otherness into sameness. We want to convert somebody to our belief and we don't spend any time trying to understand theirs, right? Why on earth would you ever expect your Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or pagan or secular or atheist friend to give a hearing to your worldview if you are not willing at all to understand his or her worldview. That is profoundly arrogant. Which does not mean that I don't think we have very important truth to offer. 
to others. But Paul walks through the city and he gets to know the lay of the land. He looks at the way people worship and what they worship and who and how and why. And he says, I found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. And what, what you pray to as unknown, I am about to make known to you. You see, he finds this little crack in the wall where he can put in the wedge of the gospel and, and split things open. Now, note that what he does not do is just pat them on the back and say, wow, you guys are awesome religious people. I have another God that you should add to your list. No. He does say to them, essentially, your, your worldview is fundamentally flawed. I'm going to tell you why it is and, and what the truth actually is. But he doesn't lead with that. Right? It's basic persuasion. <laughs> if you've ever had to give a persuasive speech or write a persuasive paper or, I don't know what you RIT guys do, like write a persuasive web app, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> See, the humanities, they matter, guys. They really, really matter. <laughs> they don't pay well, though. <laughs> um, every English major in the room can tell you. Um, but he doesn't, he doesn't lead with all the ways they're wrong. He leads with, I think I understand you a little bit. Here is, here's the... Here's how close you are to the truth. Let me connect the dots for you with what I think is the most important truth in the entire universe. He says, verse 24, He who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands. See, this is, this is where you've gone astray from the truth. You have this altar to the unknown God. I'm going to tell you who he is, but I'm also going to tell you who he isn't. You have the seeds of truth. They're, they're planted there. You're just harvesting the wrong plant when it comes up. Let me show you the way. And take heart because, and he says this, what a, what a wonderful, beautiful, gentle thing to say to people he would have considered pagans. He is not far from each one of us. In that simple sentence, he Eight words, right? He does two things. One is he places himself on the same plane with the people he's talking to from each one of us. And then he says, he he tells them how close they are to God. He's not far from each one of us. We are all so close to him. He is so close to all of us. What a wonderful, gentle thing to say. And then toward the end of this speech that he gives, look at this. He's not far from each one of us. And then verse 28, he says, for, which is one of those hinge words, right? What is the for for? (laughs) That's a variation on a theme. It indicates that he's about to, to quote Scripture, right? He's not far from each one of us, for in him we live and have and move and have our being. And we too are his offspring. 
Now, no cheating, no chain reference Bible here. Does anybody offhand know which Old Testament passages Paul is quoting here? He's not. (laughs) He's not quoting the Old Testament. Why would he quote the Old Testament? They're Greeks. They worship the Pantheon. They don't care what the Old Testament says. He quotes Epimenides, a 7th or maybe 6th century Greek poet. And Epimenides rhymes with EpiPen for bees, which I think is just the coolest thing ever. (laughs) And at that moment, he lost them. (laughs) Sorry. And he quotes Eretus, a third century Greek poet. Paul is not quoting Hebrew scripture about Yahweh, the one true God. He's quoting Greek poetry about Zeus. (laughs) You know, the lightning bolt guy. (laughs) With the swan and the head splitting open and stuff. Right? You remember all this. He's quoting a poem about Zeus to teach them something about Jesus. Do you know how fast he would get fired from his job as an itinerant evangelist today, doing something like that? It's really a brilliant bit of persuasion, though. The approach is quite counterintuitive, if you stop and think about it. Not to mention that it's kind of the complete opposite of of what much of contemporary evangelical Christianity seems to be trying to do in sharing the gospel. This is why, by the way, Artisan's mission statement contains the phrase, engage culture. Our mission is to encounter God, embrace people, and engage culture in the way of Jesus. That third piece, engage culture, is this kind of thing exactly. The whole bit about understanding the people that you live near, the people that you work with, the people who you talk to, the people who you might be inspired during this season to share the gospel with in some way. But if you don't embrace them and in some way engage with the culture that they bring to the table, you you really don't have any any footing from which to, to proclaim the truth to them. So during this series, I've been trying to distill the messages into one short sentence. And in the first week, you may remember, I, I, I hope it was uh, reassuring to you f- to hear me say that you don't have to be an expert Christian to share the gospel. You don't have to be an expert Christian to share the gospel. And then in the second week, I said, remember, you don't have to be an expert Christian to receive the gospel either. Sometimes we want to convert everybody behaviorally before we convert them spiritually. And even that language is wrong. Like, we're not the ones who do the converting, right? That's, that's part of the problem, too. It's kind of a Messiah complex to say, I'm going to go out and save souls. no. God's going to do that. (laughs) So you don't have to be an expert Christian to share the gospel. 
the person listening doesn't have to be an expert Christian to receive the gospel. Those are the two sentences so far. And today I want to give you none, one more simple, short sentence that says, you can engage any culture with the gospel. And that goes for our own culture, I, I hope. <laughs> I love that statement in here uh, in Acts 17 about the, the culture of Athens. All the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Isn't that a little bit true of, of our own culture, our own city? Pluralistic, all over the map with what we believe, but really open to hearing anybody's story. Just tell me something new. And here's the other problem. We're not saying anything new. Which is not to say that you have to reinvent the wheel, that you have to preach a different gospel. That's not what I am saying. But we're not saying it in a new way. We're not saying it in a way that, that communicates to anybody who might be interested in hearing something new. See, our, our, I think maybe we feel like we do have something new to say to somebody because we haven't considered what they may have already heard. So we don't feel like we have to do any, any real work except to convince them to listen to something new. And what I would say to you is just like the Athenians, the people of Rochester are happy to hear something new. Our challenge is to present and explain and express our own faith in a way that sounds new. Because if you can make it sound new, that's a good indication that you're, making, you're also making it sound real. That you're also doing this from a place of authenticity. Remember in the first week I started saying that sometimes we're, we're selling people a system that we don't believe in ourselves? We're selling them this sterilized version of Christianity that we haven't actually experienced. We're selling them a perspective and a worldview that we don't own. This is along the same lines. So our challenge is not to convince somebody to listen to something new. Our challenge is to convince them that the Christian faith is something new for them, that it's something valid, that it's not the the default option. It's not the same old story that they've heard over and over again. It's not people with placards. It's not a box that you check off on a census form. Now, this is a tall order. (laughs) It's daunting to think about, isn't it? I mean, please understand that I'm not suggesting that this should be easy for you to do. It certainly is not easy for me to do. But as I close, let's take stock of the response that Paul gets. Let's see where the bar is set for evangelists in Athens or Rochester. Look at verse 32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed. Of course they did, because he just told them that a person died and rose from the dead. If that doesn't make somebody scoff, you're not saying it clearly enough. <laughs> right? Listen, I, this drives me crazy. Like, we think that the spread of Christianity was, it was just so fertile because people were so ignorant back then. They were so dumb. 
they didn't know what we know about evolution and you know the the age of the earth and 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 uh, the location of the sun relative to the earth and uh, you know the, the fact that people don't rise from the dead. I mean, this is all new science that we can't expect them to have. That's crazy talk. Of course, they didn't think people rose from the dead. Of course, they scoffed at that. Anyway, but others said. We will hear you again about this. That's it. Mentions a couple of people who converted and came with him. Most of the people scoffed, I would bet. I wasn't there. I bet the majority were the scoffers. And then you have a couple of people who converted immediately. And then this really interesting group of people in the middle who simply said, we will hear you again about this. That doesn't set the bar very high at all, does it? Remember, this is the Apostle Paul getting these results. You know, in many ways, the, <laughs> the human catalyst for the spread of the gospel throughout the entire known world. Right? Like the MVP evangelist. Right? <laughs> he gets scoffers. And a bunch of people who say, eh, we'll hear you again on this. That's a pretty low bar. We can clear that bar. Is it enough to say go and do likewise? Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this story. I love this story of Scripture and the way it speaks to me. I pray that by the power of your Spirit that it would also speak to others who have heard it read this morning. And I pray that you would be with each one of us as we think about our friends and family members who we earnestly do want to share Jesus with. Not some bill of goods, not some sterile experience that we ourselves don't even know, but our honest experience with Jesus that we would love to share with our friends and family. We pray as we think of those people in light of this story, that you would give us the courage to proclaim the gospel, not only in the synagogue, but in the marketplace. That you would remind us that your gospel is powerful enough to take root, to be heard, to flourish, and to bear fruit in any culture, in the heart of any person. Help us not to be the ones who discriminate about who should hear it. but to have the courage to share it whenever you put it on our heart to do so. And we pray and trust that your Holy Spirit would be at work in the hearts and minds of people uh, who we're thinking about and loving and caring for. That you would be preparing that soil for the seed of the gospel uh, and help us to also to trust that, that planting, the same, this, planting the seed is not the same thing as making it grow. Help us to leave that miracle to you, but to be faithful in the planting. We pray through Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our communion table is open. I'd invite you to come and receive the meal that Jesus offered to his disciples. Any disciple of Jesus is welcome at the table of the Lord. 
you can tear off, uh, or in this case we have the, the unleavened cracker bread, you can break it off and dip it in the wine or the juice. Receive his body and blood uh, into your own body. Receive the grace, the grace that is contained therein. Remember his sacrifice. And be in unity with one another and other Christians as you do so. If you'd like to receive personal prayer, you can do that uh, up here with a member of the prayer team. And while all this is going on, we'll sing a couple more songs together. If your kids are um, in the uh, classrooms now, I'd like you to go and collect them, and you can take communion with them if you'd like, or if you'd like to do it yourself, please just go get them right afterwards. I think I may have gone slightly long this morning, and uh, it's not fair to the teachers to make that go on too much longer. (laughs) Um, Our table is open. Uh, Respond to the Spirit, however may be speaking to you. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.